0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue.
1: I hated the book. Alright? I have no idea what it's about and the
0: writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway.
2: Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis?
1: It's required reading.
2: With Tom and Stella. Episode 71, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. At the edge of the woods. Behind the Creed's new house is the old animal graveyard. The place where devoted pets are laid to rest.
0: Daddy, is church all right? What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him. Why, Judd? I have my reasons. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was that. I- Secret, but some don't stay. May the Lord bless you and keep you. No! May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of, Lois. gonna do something really
2: bad. That's why no one ever buried a human being out there.
0: You're thinking of putting him up there.
2: Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. And why nothing?
1: ever rests in peace
0: if it doesn't work i'll just put him back to sleep come back to me gage come back to us
2: paramount pictures presents (laughs) stephen king's all-time best-selling tale of horror gage
0: first i play with the What did you do? What did you do?
2: Pet Cemetery.
0: Now I wanna play with you.
2: And welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we'll be taking a thorough look at one piece of literature we've both read to determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I am Tom Paneris, and right here with me is my lovely co-host who... Um, would never put my dead body into an Indian burial ground because she respects me too much, I hope. But then again, based on the text she sent me and the um, Instagram post that she had about this book, I'm pretty sure that this may be the last episode of The <laughs> Reading. It's Stella. Hi, how hey, are you?
1: Hey, and I was doing okay, and then I saw a tweet that Paper Girls is canceled, and I'm real sad, and I want this show I... to end immediately. <laughs>
2: i'm so so upset about
1: that That's i didn't even see that coming i'm like what's what's uh alan gonna troll me about now and then i scrolled up and i was like you've got to be kidding
2: and then he said something because i was like i think i i think i cursed
1: you did on twitter
2: about it and alan replied so to the extent of saying it's it's our fault
1: but well, total so, yeah not totally ours but it does say we'll yeah. be shopped by legendary television so i don't know if yeah. If there's redemption, but oh man, I'm so bummed about that. But other yeah. than that, I'm excited that kind of fall is creeping in a bit. Like temperatures mm-hmm. are dropping so it's not super oppressive. And We're getting... yeah, slowly but surely. And of course the pumpkin spice is out. I do love myself <laughs> some major <laughs> pumpkin flavored things. So that'll yeah, that'll keep me going. Of course now I've got a creepy book to to keep us going as yeah. <laughs> well
2: yeah, I try to I do try to I'm not a I, I am not a, a enormous horror fan, um, but I do try to read like one or two a year, especially around Halloween. So this is one of them. And then I'll probably we were just off mic talking off air anyway, talking about Grady Hendrix. And um, you recently read the final girl support group. And uh, I recommended My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is also a movie on Amazon that's coming out on September 30th. So um, I highly recommend that. And then I will probably end up reading The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires* because it's it's staring right at me
1: from next to my
0: computer (laughs) here in
1: my basement. Well, your reading pile is always so large, so I guess you do need to – the ones that shame you by looking you in the face, you need to read those first.
2: Well, it's either that or their eyes were watching God, and I think I'll save that. For
1: wow, that. yeah, talk about a not uplifting. That's,
2: that's not a horror <laughs> Jeez,
1: movie. Jeez, yeah, it's a
2: horror novel, yeah. So yeah, I got some interesting ones in this in this pile. <laughs> so, all right, but no, yeah, we're talking about um, we're talking about Semet- Pet Cemetery uh, by Stephen King this time around, and uh, we're gonna do our usual uh, look at it. Before we get to that, I guess I should ask you what your history with the book is.
1: Yeah, so my history with the book is primarily a history with the film. And I know you're going to talk about it, but the 1989 film and i just mm-hmm. remember when i probably middle school <laughs> when i shouldn't have been watching these things it coming on tv and so i have memories of that mm-hmm. i you know i remember you know spoiler alert gage getting hit and then just like creepy mm-hmm. stuff happening and at that time i really couldn't i couldn't take it i've kind of buffed myself up a bit more so i had <laughs> it in my mind as a horror book which was the wrong approach. So, I, you know, people have already, I feel like I want to do, I do want to take to the, uh, the Twitter just to warn people that have not a horror expectation when reading this because I, I think that it goes against you to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. this was my, so I've known about it. I, I mainly just like the big story beats. Um, yeah. and then, but this is the first time that I am reading it. And then I wanted to watch the 2019 version before Mm -hmm. and i was going to watch it with harry and we i didn't communicate as well because i said okay we're watching the new one he said i just bought the old one because we were going to stream it on amazon Uh so i ended up watching the 1989 version but i guess it was good because seeing it from adult eyes and then seeing from start to finish and probably you know unedited was interesting but our library does have the 2019 version So I did put it on hold, didn't have a chance to have not gotten it yet, but it'll be interesting to compare. So basically, this is my history with the book, but I have so much history with the movie, which is almost pretty close since I saw in your notes that King wrote the screenplay.
2: Yes. Yeah, I am. My history is uh, the funny thing is I've actually never seen the films, but I remember the trailer very vividly. Um, because at the end of the trailer, there's a scene where, like, Gage is talking about how he played with Mommy, and now I'm going to oh, come you yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So that's the one thing that always stuck with me, because that was one of those commercials that would air, like, all the time on TV and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I, But I've never seen the entire uh, entirety of the film. The copy that I have, actually, I think I, I bought it at Barnes & Noble, and it, it looks like it has a uh, – it looks like it's the edition that was um, – used for the most recent movie oh, but um, yeah. i happen to be on the at barnes and noble just killing time and i saw it on a table uh was you know i was like oh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and buy it um but it is one of those books that um was omnipresent in my house growing up because my parents had they called it a secretary it was one of those desks oh, that like yes. you know it, you know those things the, the desk kind of folds out mm-hmm. and then on on top of it was almost like a like a hutch or something that they had was had glass doors and you put, there were a bunch of books inside there. In some cases it was like, there was like readers digest like three books in one that like, didn't have a, have a cover on it. Like they were just kind of the leather bound side or the, the, the regular bound side. So they kind of look good on a shelf. It's like the type of stuff you see in like a furniture store, mm-hmm. um, as display. So they had a bunch of those. So I don't think, I think, I don't know how the heck they got them, but they had a bunch of Stephen King novels, uh, next to like all my mom's Danielle steel novels. So, um, cause this was the eighties. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so among them were like the bigs, um, It, which I took off the shelf and read between seventh and eighth grade. (laughs) Again, like, how did you let me do that? Uh, Cujo. um, And then my dad had like copies like Firestarter. And I think the only one they actually never saw in the house was The Shining and Carrie. I never saw those two, but I would read Carrie years later. And of course, I've, I've read The Shining as well. Um, but like the Dead Zone, different seasons, like all these books, and Pet Cemetery. and it was a hardcover edition. Probably for the, it was probably a first edition too. Not that that really it matters much for you know Stephen King, who's so ubiquitous. Mm. Um, but no, it was just like they had bought it in hardcover and read it, you know, and that was. Uh, So so it was always on my list. And I remember the original cover because it had the cat like evil looking cat in the the grave and Pet Cemetery was like scrawled in like children's handwriting. I can see it in my I can see it in my in my in my mind. And um, at some point or another, my dad told me about the whole thing with Gage getting hit by the uh, tractor trailer. Mm hmm. And it wasn't until I was getting into the book, I was like, oh, wait a second. This is the one where the kid gets hit by the truck. <laughs> so because so like because there's there's certain elements of certain novels that my dad would told me about some of the novels and stuff. We were talking about Stephen King or whatever, and they kind of got mish, mushed together
1: Oh okay, in yeah.
2: my in my mind. So, yeah. So and and I you know, the funny thing is I've caught up on reading his early stuff a little bit more than I had. So like I had read Carrie back in college cause I really wanted to read it. Cause I, I love the Sissy SpaceX movie, especially the prom scene. It's so great, but I'd never really read anything prior to it. So I picked up different seasons and I read that I've read the dark tower. But I started reading the classics. So I read *The Shining*. I've read *The Dead Zone*. Um, I have a copy of *Cujo* in my classroom. I probably grabbed that. And then this was on the this was on that list because it was it's one of his. You know, and *Salem's Lot* is going to be on there too. So I'm trying to make my way through, like the really early like classic classic King. Maybe I might skip Christine, but um, I know that that was another one they had. So, yeah. So this was kind of one that was just there, and, and I picked it because I wanted to do a horror novel for October, and there were a few on my to-read list on Goodreads, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, let's go ahead and do this one. So, so yeah. So it was kind of – I knew I wanted to do a king. I just figured I'd do Pet cemetery because it just kind of jumped out at me. So So, yeah, there's that.
1: There's that.
2: All right. Anything before we get into the background on all
1: of this? No, I don't think so. No, yeah, you've you've read far more King than I have. I the first Dark Tower, and the Green Mile, The Shining, and Doctor Sleep. I think are all of them. I am interested in Salem's Lot. My mom was kind of telling me mm-hmm. about that. She has fond memories of like the TV film from the seventies or something.
2: Yeah, I've seen bits
1: of <clears throat> yeah, of and then. Carrie, I think, would be an interesting study, especially given my religious bet to see how that kind of works in. So I think that would be an interesting book to pull on this show, actually.
2: Yeah. All right. So let's get into the Pet cemetery of it all. I pulled all of the plot synopsis and the background information from Wikipedia. So just to give credit where credit is due. Um, I'm not going to get into the background of the life of Stephen King here. We covered it a little bit. In um, our Green Mile episode, he's one of those authors whose body of work is so huge that it's better to just kind of look at like the background of the novel and maybe what he was doing at the time as opposed to, you know, born in Maine and brought up and everything like that. So so this uh, this came about um, as an idea in 1979. The novel was published Okay, the first copyright is actually 83. The first draft was completed in May of 1979. So uh, in 1979, King was a writer in residence at the University of Maine, and the house he was renting was adjacent to a major road where dogs and cats were often killed by oncoming trucks. After his daughter's cat was killed by a truck along that road, he explained the death of the pet to his daughter and then buried the cat. Three days later, King imagined what would happen if a family suffered the same tragedy, but the cat came back to life, quote, fundamentally wrong. Because this is a Stephen King novel, right? He then imagined what would happen if that family's young son were also killed by a passing truck. He decided to write a book based on these ideas, and that book would be a retelling of The Monkey's Paw,
0: Mm-hmm
2: short story by w.w. jacobs about parents whose son resurrects after they wish for that to happen you know and as and, and the monkey's paw at this point is such a famous story that the idea of that sort of wish bargain is re- sometimes referred to as a monkey's paw type bargain like it's it's a Ubiquitous. It's a very, very well-known sort of phrase. It's almost on the level of like a Faustian bargain, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I see the monkey's paw aspect of it here because in the monkey's paw, there's like consequences for every wish and such. And now I'm thinking about the Treehouse of Horror episode <laughs> where the monkey's paw and uh, and them wishing for like fame and then all the stuff and aliens invade and Homer's last wishes. Um, a turkey sandwich, and he's like, The turkey's dry, like, damn, you cursed monkey's paw. <laughs> so, anyway, Donovan's laughing right now.
1: Um, yeah. so you, 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 <laughs> you didn't pick the right co host. If you want Simpsons s- adoration, I'm so sorry.
2: Yeah. The novel was published in, in 83. the first draft was completed in 79. It was another one of what was a string of bestsellers for Stephen King through the 70s and the 80s. And really, like, I don't know, he doesn't really put forth like b- the blockbuster level numbers that he had when he, you know in in his heyday of the 70s and 80s. but the man has been one of the most consistently best selling writers. You know, of the last 50 years. It's, in fact, he just had another book come out last week. It's called Fairy Tale, um, and I actually got—I I actually have it in hardcover. I haven't read it yet, but um, but it looks really, really good. And it's more of a fantasy novel than it is a horror novel. So, um, but yeah. So um, published in '83, uh, and he has gone on record, and it's in the in the introduction that uh, to the novel edition that I have. Has gone on record stating that all of all the novels he has written, Pet Cemetery is the one which genuinely scares him the most.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was kind of one of the things he talked about in the in the intro is that he the other thing he was trying to do was essentially write a novel that he didn't want to finish reading. Like that it was so that like, like he was trying to scare himself, essentially. Like, could I write something that is so like so raw, so personal, so frightening to me that I that I I don't know if I want to continue. So that was so that that's why that's why he said that. Um, as we mentioned at the the top of the show, the movie had when we talked about our history with it. There there have been movie versions. There actually have been two. Uh, the first one that Stella mentioned having seen was from 1989. It's directed by Mary Lambert. Who, uh, who has a long-storied career in, in television and music videos, but also has directed a number of horror movies as well. Um, it starred Dale Midkiff, whom um, I remember from the early 90s syndicated show Time Tracks as Lewis, Fred Gwynn, uh, TV's Herman Munster as Judd, Denise Crosby, Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation as Rachel, Bud Greenquist as Victor. Miko Hughes as Gage. Blaze doll as Ellie. King wrote the screenplay. He has a cameo as a minister. Uh, male actor Andrew Hubistek portrayed Zelda because the filmmakers felt that a grown man playing a disabled, deformed teenage girl would make a character more hideous and frightening. Mm-hmm. The film received mixed reviews, but it was a commercial success. It was followed by a sequel, Pet Cemetery 2, which I believe starred Anthony Edwards and Edward Furlong. In 1992. So this is a pre ER Anthony Edwards. And a Does he have hair? Post. I think he's balding. Okay. And a, um, a post Terminator 2 Eddie Furlong.
1: They're just getting their legs under them and then they do Pet yeah, Cemetery 2.
2: I know. A second film adaptation of the novel was released in April 5th, 2019. It was directed by Chris Dennis Weidmer, uh, Dennis Widmeyer, sorry, and Kevin Kulch, Uh The film stars Jason Clarke as Lewis Creed, Amy Simets or
1: Oh, <gasps> we know Rachel. her. Do you know where she is?
2: Please tell me the name sounds familiar.
1: Covenant. Alien oh, really? Covenant. I think she was married oh, right. to that's Tennessee, right. Right. but I could be wrong. Oh,
2: okay, yeah.
1: She's the one who locked the <laughs> woman in the room. It's like, I'm so sorry, and then yes. leaves. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: John Lithgow played Judd in this one. Jete Lawrence played Ellie. And twins Hugo and Lucas Lavoy plays Gage. A prequel to the 2019 adaptation was said to be in the works via Paramount Plus at some point in 2021. I'm not sure what the status of that is. And one interesting thing on the Wikipedia page about adaptations was that Guillermo del Toro has said he's interested in adapting the novel. Um, The one detail he talked about in the interview was that when he would find a way to do the special effects of when they bring the character back to life, making sure they took the shine out of the eyes of the character. Oh,
1: interesting.
2: And I was like, that would look pretty cool. I would see a Guillermo del Toro version of this of this book to see what he were to do with it. Mm -hmm. Because it is it's. Got its fantastical pieces, but it's very, very grounded in the real world.
1: But don't you think it's too soon now after they tried it with 2019?
2: I believe you're right. Um, but then I, I wouldn't wonder if some, if Guillermo del Toro were to, to pitch this to somebody who had the rights to do it, mm. that they might greenlight.
0: Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just
2: because of, because it's him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. There was also a BBC audio production of the book that was released in 1997. So. All right, so let's get into the plot. The plot, like I said, is just the summary from Wikipedia. It's actually pretty solid. Lewis Creed is a doctor from Chicago, and he is appointed director of the University of Maine's campus health service. He moves to a large house near the small town of Ludlow with his wife, Rachel, their two young children, Ellie and Gage, and Ellie's cat, Winston Churchill. I'll pause here to say that I did look up on like one of the King Wikipedia fandom, f- fandom sites or whatever. Um, wikis, uh, whether or not Ludlow makes other appearances. It makes appearances, I think, maybe in the dark half and maybe another novel. But there's no like continuation of this story. So by and large, Pet Cemetery, while it exists in the main of Stephen King, you know how like because at one point in the novel, there's a there's an offhand reference to Cujo. And there's also, um, in toward the novel toward the end of the novel, Rachel's driving back, like, desperately trying to get home from Chicago. because She's pretty sure that something awful is going to happen. And she passes uh, Jerusalem's lot, which is Salem's lot. So it's just like a one-off reference, like, that they all exist in the same world. But there's no connective tissue between this and any other um, thing, aside from, I think, a reference to the Wendigo in The Girl Who Loves Tom Gordon. So... Anyway, (laughs) continuity aside, from the moment they arrive, the family runs into trouble. Ellie hurts her knee and Gage is stung by a bee. Their new neighbor, an elderly man named Judd Crandall, comes to help. He warns Lewis and Rachel about the highway that runs past their house, which is frequented by speeding trucks. They are servicing a chemical plant that is several miles down the road. Judd and Lewis quickly become close friends. Since Lewis's father died when he was three, he sees Judd as a surrogate father. A few weeks after the creeds move in, Judd takes the family on a walk in the woods behind their home. A well-tended path leads to a pet cemetery, which is misspelled S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y on the sign, and that's where we get the title of the book. And this is where the children of the town bury their deceased animals. The outing provokes a heated argument between Lewis and Rachel the next day. Rachel disapproves of discussing death, and she worries about how Ellie might be affected by what she saw at the cemetery. It's later explained that Rachel was traumatized by the early death of her sister Zelda from spinal meningitis. This is an issue that's brought up several times in flashbacks. Lewis empathizes with his wife and blames her parents for her trauma because they left Rachel at home with her sister when she died. Lewis himself has had a tra- has a traumatic experience during the first week of classes. Victor Pascal, who is a student who had been faithfully injured in an automobile accident, addresses his dying words to Lewis personally, even though the two men are strangers. On the night following Pascal's death, Lewis experiences what he believes is a very vivid dream in which he meets Pascal, who leads him to the deadfall at the back of the cemetery and warns him not to go beyond there. Lewis wakes up in the next morning, convinced it was in fact a dream, until he finds that his feet and bedsheets are covered with dried mud and pine needles. Nevertheless, Lewis dismisses the dream as a product of the stress he experienced during Pascal's death, coupled with his wife's lingering anxieties about the subject of death, and I will add that that automobile accident that kills Victor Pascal is pretty gruesome. So on Halloween, Judd's night wife Norma suffers a near fatal heart attack but makes a quick recovery thanks to Lewis's help. Judd is grateful and decides to repay Lewis after church is run over outside his home around Thanksgiving. Rachel and the kids are visiting Rachel's parents in Chicago, but Lewis frets over breaking the bad news to Ellie. Sympathizing with Lewis, Judd takes him to the cemetery, supposedly to bury Church. And instead of stopping there, Judd leaves Lewis further on to the real cemetery, an ancient burial ground that was once used by the Micmac tribe. There, Lewis buries the cat on Jud's instruction. And it involves like digging the grave, putting it over. You have to build like a stone cairn kind of tribute monument there. Like there's like a very small ritual associated with it. So, the next afternoon, Church returns home. The usually vibrant and lively cat now acts ornery and, in Lewis's words, a little dead. Church hunts for mice and birds, ripping them apart without eating them. He also smells so bad that Ellie no longer wants him in her room at night. Judd confirms that Church has been resurrected, and Judd himself once buried his dog there when he was younger. Lewis, deeply disturbed, begins to wish that he had not buried Church in the cemetery. Several months later, two-year-old Gage is killed by a speeding truck. Overcome with despair, Lewis considers bringing his son back to life with the help of the burial ground. Judd, guessing what Lewis is planning, attempts to dissuade him by telling him the story of Timmy Bateman. who's was the last person who was resurrected by the burial ground. Timmy Bateman was killed in action during World War II. His body was shipped back to the U.S., and his father, Bill, buried Timmy in the burial ground. Timmy returned malevolent, terrorizing the people of the town with secrets that Judd asserts he had no earthly way of knowing. Timmy was stopped by his father, Bill, who killed Timmy and set their house on fire before shooting himself. Judd states that he believes that whatever came back was not Timmy, but a demon that had possessed his corpse. He concludes that sometimes dead is better and states that the place has a power, its own evil purpose and that it may have caused Gage's death because Judd introduced Lewis to it. Despite Judd's warning and his own reservations about the idea, Lewis's grief and guilt spur him to carry out his plan. Lewis exhumes Gage's body from his grave and inters him in the burial ground. Gage is resurrected entirely different from when he was alive. Now malicious in both his words and actions, he finds one of Lewis's scalpels and kills both Judd and Rachel. Lewis kills both church engaged with lethal injections of morphine from his medical supply stock. I should also point out because it's not here that Norma does pass at one point And before his death, the whatever demon is there appears as Norma to Judd yelling about how she had illicit affairs with all her friends. And they all laughed about him behind his back. And Rachel, um, sees, Zelda, I believe because they, because Zelda had like a speech impediment and they, he referred to, uh, so they refer to this demon as Oz, the great and powerful, um, and such. So just kind of filling in some details there. So Je- he kills Jed and Rachel, Rachel, uh, Lewis kills both church and gauge. And then, um, the Crandall house burns down. Um, Lewis returns to the burial ground after that with his wife's corpse, thinking that if he buries the body faster than he did gauges, there shall be a different result. Following all of these tragic events, Lewis has also aged in physical appearance with white hair and wrinkles. One of his colleagues, Steve Masterson, notices him walking into the woods with Rachel's body. Steve, while fearful and concerned, is influenced by the power of the burial ground too, and he even considers helping Lewis bury Rachel, but he flees in terror and eventually moves away to St. Louis'. Later, Lewis sits indoors alone, playing solitaire, and Rachel's reanimated corpse walks up behind him and drops a cold hand on his shoulder, while its voice rasps, Darling. And that's where Pet Cemetery ends. So, first question we always ask before we get into our discussion is, did you like the... <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, no, this is it's complicated because I think the easy answer is I'm going to say no, but I at Mm -hmm. least want to explain why. And it honestly was because I went in with the expectation that it was a horror novel. And I was thinking, okay, it's going to be like The Shining. Mm. And in reality, and then I was, I was just bored as I, cause I'm like, mm. okay, when are things going to start to pick up? And in reality, I should have gone in thinking, actually, this is more like The Green Mile. And mm. it's more a novel about the human condition and grief. And things like Mm -hmm. that, which, of course, we can, as we know, from liking Hereditary and Midsommar, that grief and horror can go well together. Oh, very well, yeah. But but in this case, I think I just came in with the wrong expectations, Mm -hmm. and my enjoyment of the book suffered. I think that it's well written. I think there are a lot of great themes, and it was... I mean, when I think of it, and when I heard your plot synopsis, I'm like, yeah, it's a good book. It's just I didn't have as much enjoyment as as I would have. So I think that would be my message to the audience: is like, have no expectations, or just don't have like this is going to be a scary novel kind of expectation.
2: Because the, the f- there's three parts of the novel which have three different titles of it: the Pet Cemetery, the Micmac Burying Ground, and Oz the Great and Terrible. Um, <laughs>
1: pronounced just like that. It's, it's,
2: well it's spelled like that too. No,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, the first part of it. Now, the book copy that I have is only um, it's about like four hundred something pages. I think it's not very long. It's not a very long as far as, far as Stephen King books go. It's not a very long book. Mm-hmm. Three hundred ninety-four pages, and it's two. The first two hundred twelve pages are the first part, which is a really slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's a buildup and it's a building of a lot of tension. I actually did really, I did really like the novel. Um, when I got, when I started to realize that it was very grounded in reality as opposed to the crazier supernatural things, and that we weren't getting like initial scares or any hints of something that was like going to be horribly wrong, except for like kind of eerie things, I was able to kind of roll with that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And I honestly like. I think I finished this in like a day or two. It was oh,
0: okay.
2: as far as like the quality of the writing, I thought it was really, really good. I I, I don't put it up, I, you know. I it it's below the Shining and the Dead Zone for me anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the Dead zone's so good, and the Shining. I think I think the Shining, Shining and It are my two favorites. Um, and I think The Shining, as far as all the ones I read, is like his best written one, at least uh, for me. But this is this I would say is like in my top ten. I mean, I really, really did enjoy it. So, um, so yeah. So let's get into that. I, I'm glad that you brought up the whole thing about how this is a lot about our relationship with death and grief and trauma. Um, we'll get into that, but I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out right away because that's what I started to see as I was going through the through the book and such so but like one of the things the central thing is the idea that there is this ritual there is this ancient Indian burial ground like that's the horror in quotes of it yeah but we don't have there's nothing there. there's no origin for this mm-hmm. you know there's not like um, in it at one point or another we get kind of a, a, a sketch of Pennywise's origin like how he got there and or, or the past and and a lot of these things. This happens kind of like the only flashbacks we really get are the flashbacks that Rachel has thinking about Zelda. Yeah. And then the ones that we hear about Rachel and Judd and not Judd, um, Rachel and Lewis's relationship with um her parents, because Rachel's parents hate Lewis. But we don't get, you know, aside from what Judd tells. Lewis about his own experiences with the Pet Cemetery. King never comes out and explains what this is, how it came to be. It just kind of is and the rituals are known. Is that a hindrance? Is that a help? Um I think it aids the novel's realism. I mean what did you, like were you looking for something more there?
1: That's interesting that you say it aids it, even though there's no background, because I feel Mm -hmm. like that almost goes the other way, like with mysticism, because now it's not grounded in reality. And so there's more freedom to imagine what that background is. Mm I, I guess I would I, I I'm of two sides. I guess I would have liked to have known what that history is and yes you're right we do get some of it and you know colonialism and white man and we kind of get that sort of thing and Mm -hmm. the wendigo which i didn't follow very well like i was trying to figure out is this you know what that manifestation is at the end where there's like a goat but i always know that satan is represented by a goat too so i don't know exactly what was happening there so, I would have liked more background, but at the same time, Lewis is our main character, and Lewis is getting all of his information either from, you know, potentially a dead person with, with pa- Pascal or mm-hmm. from yeah. his surrogate father, yeah. Ayuh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he doesn't know. So, because I think that, is is in the favor of king's writing because how would, you know, this guy know everything that he only knows so much detail and so much history. So I think that if that's what you mean by realism, then yeah. I yeah, I agree with you because realistically with how these people are behaving towards one another, how they know things, then yeah, for sure he wouldn't know all of that. But if, in terms of like the realism of the novel and everything, then perhaps it it would have been better to have more explanation.
2: Yeah. And, and my, my thing was because if I'm, if I'm thinking about the circumstances under which he discovers these things, and then the circumstances under which he takes it further than just the cat, he is in such a state of, of grief and, and trauma. And he is in such a state of panic that, he only has a short window to dig up his kid's body and then do what he was going to do. So he doesn't really have the time to go to like the local library and research the, you know, like there's no, there's no period here where he can Indiana Jones, the whole like backstory of it and really dig into it and really do the investigation. So we're just kind of going on what he learned. And honestly, he, because when he goes to Barry Gage, he's so like in it and he remembers the ritual that he had to perform and what he had to do that, like, that's all he, that's all the information he needs. And, and, and some of the things to talk about, like you were just talking about with the Wendigo and the goat and everything. Um, there's a lot of speculation on his part and on Judd's part as well as to what that actually is. And I think that's realistic and that's what, people might think of. Mm. You know, there's it's there's, there's almost, there's an urban legend aspect to yes. this. Yeah. And I think keeping it within that context really helps because I think that this is how people would behave. There are too many times that we have a character in a modern sci-fi or horror movie who is the geeky friend who does all the explaining to the audience <laughs> for, for us. You know, the character I'm talking about, we certainly, we and, and we are geeks and we are around those people all the time but it's unrealistic to expect like everybody to have that friend especially in 1981 879 80 81 or whenever he was polishing this novel and this came out in 83 right so like you know mm-hmm. that 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 trope did not necessarily exist on the level that it does um i want to say that particular trope is really came about in a big way, like post-Scream, with the self-awareness that, that comes from. We see it with a lot of teenagers and stuff. The,
1: mm-hmm. the Jamie
2: Kennedy character in Scream, I think, is the, the architect.
1: Right, yeah, that. the one who yeah. knows all and explains yeah. all that, yeah. Yeah,
2: and he is there to inform the audience. Mm-hmm. He's in there to inform the characters, but he's there to inform the audience. And since we don't have that, I like that we don't have that character in here because King is walking us through like what a lot of us probably would, a lot of a lot of people probably would have gone through, Mm -hmm. um, or as far as the extent of the knowledge of it. Now the ancient Indian burial ground Mm trope. I looked this up very briefly. Apparently, it was fairly new at the time. Okay. According to Wikipedia, the ancient Indian burial ground idea makes its first major appearance in a film in 1979 with the Amityville Horror, mm. um, which was a huge movie. Mm-hmm. So King obviously would have seen that and and played off of it. But it's a bit of a cliche by now. Um, it's also kind of a, it's, it's also almost like a joke at this point. There's the whole like Big thing of it. Does that knock? And the fact that that's become kind of a car cliche knock this novel down a peg or hold does the novel hold up in spite of it because it is one of the originators of the i think it's one of the originators of the trope as well it's it's you know we have this we have poltergeist which was built on a just a, a graveyard and they didn't you know bury the bodies and then you have something like this and they came out within a few years of each other and then um the shining The Shining. Yeah. 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 So. uh, So is does it does it still hold up because of its placement in this particular trope or is it knocked down a peg? And then (laughs) is it is it insensitive to indigenous people?
1: Yeah, I think that that's that's the kicker, isn't it? So no one's going to know. Well, I shouldn't say that because you just proved me wrong with this, but it's (laughs) hard because just layman people are not going to know where this runs in terms of the timeline of when the Mm -hmm. Indian burial ground was first used as a quote unquote trope. Mm -hmm. So this was, if you're correct before it was even a trope, it, you know, kind of originated it. And in that case, I think you can kind of, say like well you know it was the one to initiate it and and bring it through but the fact that he keeps going back to that well I think is really interesting and so I think that might knock it down a bit and then Yeah. So I think we're at a place now where we need to step back and consider what does this actually mean in terms of cultural sensitivity Mm -hmm. and the fact that these burial grounds somehow seem to be consistently a source of evil. Like, what is that exactly saying? And then you got a white man writing it. (laughs) So because I am all on board with the spirituality about it um, or mm-hmm. surrounding it. And. The Shining, I think, is a bit harsher than this one, because in the novel here. Originally, the bull that I don't even know how those people carried a bull up to the burial ground, yeah, by the yeah, way, the people had but a bull that let's died, just go it with that. Yeah, <laughs> the bull was the only thing that like turned and was wrong. Now, all of the, and wrong in an evil way, because we know that um, Spot was a bit messed up. Timmy was a bit messed up. So we can kind of understand that, oh, you know, they're not yeah. the same. They're very zombie like, but the bull was the only one that was actually killing people and it was bad. And, you know, that could have just been uh, a fluke. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you know, potential will definitely gauge. And then yeah. we don't know where we're left at a cliffhanger. So we don't really know about Rachel. So, mm-hmm. the the movie, the eighty nine movie. I don't know about the two nineteen, to twenty nineteen. Everything that comes out is evil, and so mm-hmm. I think that's a worse lens than potentially what this was doing because people were just coming back. So I feel like that burial ground just infused there's some spirituality, infused them, and and yeah. they were living again. But you've got the Wendigo. You have kind of this um, horrific. Seen even leading up to it. And there's like things kind of telling you not to go back there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. So I think he was as respectful as he could be, mm-hmm. but given what his plot was going to be, he was definitely like teetering on a line. But I think looking back now, I, I think maybe we shouldn't be using that as a setting anymore i think i hope that the time for that is done i don't know if there are any other settings for this like can you do something else but it just seems like indian or native oh boy native american equals Mm -hmm. you know evil or something other or something you know suspicious is going to happen and that just seems like a, a bad lens
2: yeah, and I apologize for using the word Indian, but the, the I did trope well, essentially,
1: so I yeah, yeah. But
2: the, the phrase "ancient Indian burial ground" that's the trope, yeah. right? So that's why I was using it in that context. But Native American indigenous people, if, if if we accept Judge's hypothesis that this is some sort of demon mm-hmm. that's possessing, then there's a sense that, um, and this might be a stretch here, that the Micmac were had buried their people there because that was some sort of sacred ground to them, but they were also keeping that particular evil at bay through some way of, of the thing. And then somebody figured out a way to, to bring, you know, that, that, whatever that, that magical, that magic or or spiritualness or something that happened there. Um, and, like white people just kind of intruded on it and started using it for, for their own devices, not realizing the consequences, which kind of tracks with what white people have done to Native Americans. Um, but it's almost like it it, it does go along very well in you are missing with things that you don't know and that are going to, going to hurt you or come back to, to even kill you. (sighs) I suppose that this could be put in a context of something Judeo Christian or, or whatever. Um uh, there there's a there's like a Dario Argento film from the eighties where like it's this weird, weird movie, but the whole premise is that this church was built on top of a um, of a mass grave of Satanists who are conjuring demons. And mm. like one afternoon ever, and evening, everybody who's in the church starts getting possessed because they've been digging an archeological dig and they find the portal, to hell, you know, like it's, you know, it's an Italian horror <laughs> film. So it's, it's all of kind course. of schlocky in places. Yeah. But that whole idea that like we put, we put this there to to seal away the evil and you have, because of your meddling have started to uncover it. So if that's the case, Um, then it's going along on some level with the thing that King tends to do. And he did this with it, that the idea that the evil will come and go and it will lie dormant for however long it needs. Mm -hmm. So with the dog and then the, and then Timmy and then the bull, it's like that evil with its one demon, many demons or whatever. It's testing the waters to the point where it discovers it can come back to kill. And maybe it does that with Church and realizes, oh, I'm back to what I can do. And that's why when it possesses Gage, Gage becomes like goes out and actually becomes murderous because Church is not attacking any of the humans. He's just killing birds and mice, which are kind of what cats are have a reputation of wanting to do. Um, But the Church was never like that. But it's just like, is this the evil possessing Church and kind of testing the waters to see what it's capable of. And now that it understands like what it can do, it's going to, you know, as, as Judd said, it kind of lured gauge to his, you know, like and, yeah. and stuff like that. So I was just wondering that I think that it's possible that you could do this out being like some sort of weird, let's make a non let's make a non white group and their religion seem mystical and mysterious because that is a really, unfortunately insensitive. Tr- that is a very mm-hmm. sensitive type of approach. And it's, and it's very unfortunate because we, because our, our culture in general does that with like, especially, um, Eastern religions and practices, you know? Yeah. And we've been doing it for, for decades and centuries this sort of, quote, exoticness of what we used to refer to as the Orient, you know, and those sorts of things. And then like, like Eastern medicine and healing and all this, I love doing yoga, but there is a certain amount, like there's people who take it to the point where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of weird appropriation, a lot of weird culture and sensitivity for it. And we can see how that is being used here as a horror trope as well. But at the same time, like I said, I think the novel still holds up because he doesn't seem to be, be deliberately insensitive about it. Um, cause it's also sort of the legend of the beast that lives in the North woods. Right. So if it's the Northwest, it's Bigfoot, right? Or mm-hmm. it's some sort of, or it's the Jer- New Jersey devil, or the Mothman in West Virginia. Like, there's there's places all around the country and all around the world, like the Chupacabra, you know, there's places all around that have a beast or legend of some sort of evil thing, you know, and um, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to a religion or something. So, So, yeah, so it's kind of, it's on the fence. Yeah. He's walking a very fine line here. So, um, we, yeah, we're, we're, we he does draw on the mysticism of ancient Indian burial grounds, but he also quotes. You were talking about spirituality, so we're going to get into a little here. Lazarus, the biblical story of the resurrection of Lazarus,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is in Luke.
1: Um, Mark. I think he keeps.
2: I got a one in four chance here. Uh, <laughs>
1: I think he keeps quoting Ringo. from. He does quote from Luke because there's like some sort of mention of. Uh, um, Luke being the physician. I thought he also quoted from John in one of the prefaces to
2: uh-huh.
1: let's see. Yeah, John's Gospel.
2: L- Luke's the one I read in college because we studied it from a more historical perspective than uh, you know, like which is, it just, I thought it was an interesting reading. Yeah. Um, so the, the whole idea is that Lazarus has died. Um, was he a brother or cousin of mary magdalene
1: um i have to
2: apologize it's been a very long time since i've
1: read and and you're putting me on fault it's biblical is, knowledge or here.
2: Is, is does he know like is he a relation to or is he just
1: i don't know about mary martha is right. the one who martha. yeah comes out and um like kind of shames jesus and said if he had been here he wouldn't have been yeah. um i don't know about mary magdalene
2: okay but yeah, I, was I, I know that there's some women you know that like women who keep reoccurring in the, in the, in those stories. Um, and they, their names all start with them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so he so it's, there's an irony to King quoting, because Lazarus is seen as a miracle, right? You know, and it's mm-hmm. all supposed to be positive. And the resurrections in here are not positive. um, <laughs> Or are there miracles gone wrong?
1: Yeah, miracles gone wrong. Yes. Is there exactly. is there like a comment
2: like what's the spiritual angle here? Is there a commentary on the miracle of resurrection? Is like Ooh. the whole thing is, is is Judd's sometimes dead is better like a an actual statement of purpose? I mean, you know, we're we're playing with things that we're playing with fire.
1: Yeah. In this book, for so, sure. like, yeah, and I mean, when you try to play God, you know that that's not going to work out. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to that. Yeah, Yeah. and there was really meant to be only one resurrection, and there's a positive Mm -hmm. reason and effect. There's a positive reason for it and then um, a positive effect from it. But no one can really replicate that, and so I think it just, yeah, it just does not... (laughs) It just does not come out well. So is there a commentary on I I'm hoping that there's not sort of, you know, commentary against Jesus's resurrection. I think it's more just that, you know, if that is the ultimate model, no one can Mm -hmm. no one can compare themselves to that or lead they're never going to be God. So obviously it's it's going to be twisted and perverted, and it's it's not going to work out. So I, I would think that's what it would potentially be. Um, we know that there are – we discussed this, didn't we, about miracles? Oh, yeah, it was that book, that, the hiking book that I didn't care for. Yeah. Um, there are, <laughs> Yes, there are um, – I was going to say obviously. But ooh, some of us believe that there are still miracles, but they don't really – and Alan can, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but they never reach to that extent of conquering no. death because it only needed to be done once. And it only needed to be done by Jesus. And so it's mm-hmm. it's not going to happen again.
0: Yeah. Until and, we
1: all, of course, um, well, go up, yeah. up to heaven. But yeah.
2: And, and, and no human brought Jesus back to life. That's another no. thing. Like he – it was – essentially preordained. Yeah. Um, and, and for all the intents and purposes, it's God who brought him back to life. So you're, I think the point you made about somebody trying to play God here is apt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think the quoting of Lazarus is probably, cause Lazarus is probably the second most famous resurrection in the new Testament. Right. You know, the, in part one, we see Jesus said to them, and he's paraphrasing, he says. He even says, it's John's Gospel, paraphrase. Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go, that I may wake him, out, wake him out of his sleep. Then the disciples looked at each other, and some smiled, because they did not know Jesus had spoken in figure. Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. So then Jesus spoke to them more plainly, Lazarus is dead, yes, nevertheless, let us go, go to him. Then, the next thing is... When Jesus came to Bethany, this is at the Micmac burial Ground, he found that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days already. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she hurried to meet him. Lord, she said, if you had been there, my brother would have not have died. This is what you were just talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now you're here, I will. And I know that whatever you ask of God, God will grant again. Jesus answered her, your brother shall rise again. And then there's another quote of by the Ramones that says, hey, ho, let's go. Yeah. Um, the Ramones, the Ramones, by the way, recorded the theme song to the 1989 film, and I will, and and that's the song you heard at the top of the episode.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then Oz the Great and Terrible has Lazar the Lazarus Come Fourth Part, and then it's also paired with a quote from The Monkey's Paw and them wishing their boy alive again. It, it kind of tracks with what's going on in the in those parts of the book that. That he—it's almost like he's having—he's giving Lewis this hubris that he thinks he can be—that he can be Jesus raising Lazarus in a sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the the Lazarus tale probably would be very very familiar to even the average layperson who's not that versed in scripture, because it's one of the more famous of the miracles that Jesus does in the these like water to wine and Lazarus are probably two of the most and the and the um, the, the the sermon on the mount the loaves, the fishes and the feeding, you know, and all that. I think those are the three that people, even the most lay person do, knows either from seeing it in movies or just, just, you know, knowing, um, because they are, they tend to be alluded to. So,
1: and the, what did you mention the water to wine?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. And there are a lot of us who wish we could turn water into wine, but that's a whole different thing. um, I think I agree with you, it's, it's less of a, not a criticism per se, of the of the actual resurrection and more of the, you cannot, you, again, you're messing with things which you can't understand, um, and you should not be playing, you're not Jesus, <laughs> so don't. Um, so going on to more happy things, death, um, <laughs> it's, ob- it's obviously the centerpiece of this book. But it's not just like because people die, it's because the body count is actually not that big. If you count the flashbacks where you have Zelda and Timmy, there are five deaths in the present day and then there are a couple of flashbacks because you have Gage in church, Rachel, but then you have Norma and you have Victor Pascal. So it's not as you know um, and and they're not and and they're not as uh it's not as as heavy as some other books tend to be. But what's I think just as important it's not the deaths seeing the deaths it's the reaction to the relationship that people have with death. So like Rachel completely avoids it because of what happened with her sister Zelda
0: mm-hmm. and,
2: and the way that, um, and then, um, Lewis attempts to teach Ellie about death, especially when she asks about it. Then there's Victor Pascal. There's Norma's slow decline, and um, eventual death as well. And then there's Lewis's descent as it is, um, into a sort of madness, after Gage dies, and then especially after Rachel, you know, he, he's kind of gone at that point. You know, whatever sanity he had left after after Rachel dies, it is completely gone. So let's start with Rachel. She is so traumatized by what she went through with her sister that whenever the topic is brought up, she flips out. And I think at one point, Ellie's just asking very curious questions because little kids, like kindergartners, tend to do that. And death is a topic that will come up. They have fights over it. Um, And then we learn as we go through the book that Rachel was very often left to be alone with her sister who, toward the end of her life, they were essentially just making her comfortable. And she was a vicious person to everybody in that house and would make them suffer in different ways, or at least that's the way Rachel interpreted it, that she was way more, uh, had way more ability than she, than she let on and, and really just did things to, to make her parents and make Rachel work harder and suffer and, and just Mm -hmm. grieve more. Her parents kind of kept Zelda, probably because her parents kind of kept Zelda locked away. And, and then at the end it was just and they left Rachel for her to die so there's this there's this trauma in it. Um, what did you make from that as far as its importance in the book?
1: Uh, of its importance that's that's the big thing like how does it fit within the scheme? Yeah Well, it's she is as like less well formed maybe that's not the right phrasing if we compare Rachel to Ellie it's uh-huh. interesting because Ellie is currently asking these questions having discussions with Lewis and kind of like making her way through and even i think comes to a point where you know if if church you know, dies, then he dies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that was already after he died the first time, but she is kind of, become, and her mother is not at that point at all. So it's almost like the opposite um, in the, I don't know, in the spectrum of development, yeah. but it's of course, because of what had happened and that she witnessed a death and a violent death. And mm-hmm. there was no one really to, her parents didn't really explain anything of what was happening. It was just cruel in, in all the angles. And then, of course, her parents left her. Yeah. So I guess she's, she's a foil. Am I using that correctly? She's yeah. a foil to Ellie. And because this novel is just surrounded in with death, I think each of the characters has their own perspective of what it is and their own experience because, of course, compared Mm -hmm. to Ellie, compared to Lewis, who is very clinical in his ideas of what death is, and then Judd has his own very specific – I don't think I could put my finger on how to describe – Relationship with death. So I, I guess if we look at, you know, the span um, or just the novel and people's relationship with death, then it's important. But if we think about it in terms of the plot, I'm not sure that I could necessarily say. I mean, it adds a horror element mm. where there aren't many um, and it's this development takes so long because you don't understand why she's getting so upset and having yeah. these fights with Lewis. And then she finally tells him and the fact that they've been married for years and be, been together and, and she's never told him was was a big moment there. But, yeah, what do you think about that importance?
2: I um I think it. I think there's an importance for her development as a character because of the way that she... Because of the way I think it motivates her her eventual, on some level, acceptance of it. Uh, I think before she dies, she has a little bit more perspective on it. And I think that's kind of what, one of the things that's motivating her to... Um, Uh, try to go back to Lewis at the end of the book because um, after the, so the, the circumstances surrounding Gage's resurrection are that Lewis sends Rachel to her parents in Chicago for a few days. So he has this very short window to, and cause he's going to go dig up Gage's body and he wants to be able to do it without anybody trying to figure out what's going on. So he sends them there and like Ellie starts having nightmares And Rachel gets really like there's like premonitions are abounding and Rachel Mm -hmm. decides to go by back by herself. And because she's she thinks she has a feeling somehow that she knows what Lewis is going to do and she needs to stop him from doing it. And there's this it's almost comedic in a way, because like Victor Pascal is basically with her on the way and and she's falling asleep at the wheel, trying to drive her from like Boston. It's like everything is working against her to keep her from arriving at Ludlow until after Gage has come back to life. And it's almost like she's accepted in, in trying to prevent Lewis from doing this. She's accepted the concept of death in a way that she hadn't before. And also on the flip side, it's almost like her, he loves her so much and there's this whole history with her parents and they absolutely hate him. Like to the point where her father tried to buy him off
0: Mm.
2: to not marry his daughter.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so it's them. There's a, there's a me and you against the world aspect to it all. And he knows how much, She'd be devastated anyway, even if she had the, didn't have this horrible relationship with death. I can't imagine that the death of your two-year-old son would be something that you're fine from after a few days, right? But at the same time, he knows the way she's felt about death, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and he knows um, he, he keeps trying to avoid her and Ellie feeling pain. And that's why. So I think her reaction to death and her relationship with death is one of the things that spurs him on to go dig up his kid. So I think that's where its importance comes in,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and such. Um, and I think that it also, because of all that and his avoiding it, it gets Ellie out of the picture, too, um, because Ellie's the only person in the family who has a happy cause a happy ending. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit. So I think I think there's there's some there's some room for. It, but you're right. It it's so it's so slowly revealed. And Rachel, in a sense, by the end, before her untimely death, is able to sort of banish the malevolent spirit of of her sister. Uh, you know, because because the, the thing appears to her, and you know, she's. She has she puts a little more than a, of a fight than she did because mm-hmm. Zelda the and and this is the thing about the, the trauma of Zelda's death. You're right, it's violent, but it's like this prolonged violence, right? It's not like Zelda was murdered in front of her. It's this slow death from the disease, and it's it just it seems that like it's a violent very very, very end, but it's almost like the violence had been recurring and recurring and recurring mm-hmm. through the last days of Zelda's life. And that is even worse, you know, because it's just, it's almost abusive type of trauma. So, yeah. But yeah, I see where, I see where he is using it to motivate these two characters in a both, in in a way that's more positive and that she overcomes something and develops something, unfortunately ends up being too late. And then it contributes to his eventual decline. Although, I would say that he, prior to that, has a very good concept of it and relationship with the concept of death. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I think the death of Victor Pascal would have traumatized anybody because it's pretty gruesome. He comes in yeah. and like, they try to save the guy, but he's been like cleaved <laughs> by this horrible car accident. He's trying to approach teaching Ellie about death in a way that is very matter-of-fact and, and very mature, Like really he's he tries to approach it from a way that gives his daughter the respect that I think she as a little girl would have was was hoping for. Instead of rushing off she's a genuine concern. So I actually really did appreciate that about him as a as a father and such. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. (sighs) Judd Again, because do you think that inadvertently Judd's Judd's like an amazing shape and health for somebody who's in his eighties? And I and wonder and drinks
1: beer every night.
2: And drinks beer every day. And I wonder yeah. if that is the is the cemetery keeping him around so that he can pass it on.
1: Maybe, because he, he certainly he even recognizes that I think he was used. Mm-hmm. In order to, like, he regrets almost instantly, I think, the church, mm. that whole church, bringing yep. Lewis and church there and, and starting it off. And is like, this was the plan all along to kind of have things get out of control. So it seems like it um, kind of in this crazy, uh, mystical, spiritual way that the Pet cemetery always had its eye on. You know, somewhere, I guess, to The Shining, because The Overlook always yeah. seemed to have, well, originally, its eye on uh, the kid. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there is something about that. And as the town ages, you know, he's one of the last remaining people. But he also mm-hmm. is so close in proximity that I think the power is that much stronger. Because if you remember at the very end, it was so startling that the doctor almost was going to help yes did you say
2: Steve Steve yeah
1: the doctor was almost going to help, but then something like he got spooked potentially by the shadow of the Wendigo and then left. And Mm -hmm. then as he got farther away, he kind of forgot what had happened. Mm -hmm. And even later on, he would like dream about it and it would come to mind. But other than that, didn't really pay any attention. So I think the proximity made it stronger. And so Judd is, is right there. So if you think about it, even from the very beginning, it had its hooks in because he showed Ellie and the whole family, you know, he took them there and led them up there and showed them the, the pet cemetery. So I think you're right on with that.
2: Yeah. Cause legends, urban legends, legends die. If you don't have somebody to pass them on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the pet cemetery needs almost like a steward or a caretaker. The Judd's not taking care of it, but in the in a, metaphorical sense he's kind of that caretaker that he's there to and now like he's given that job over to lewis which is kind of where we are at the end of the novel like you know the the cemetery has its hooks in lewis and we don't know what happens to him at that point does he stay alive and then eventually pass that on i think it depends on what happens to rachel
1: yeah if yeah yeah,
2: because everything else that had come back to life, somebody got smart and killed it. So that's a yeah. So we'll we'll put a pin in that.
1: Yeah, and if Rachel, and it's unfortunate that the movie, the eighty nine version at least, leads you to believe that Rachel was also corrupted. Mm-hmm. Which I guess it wouldn't make sense given that they corrupted everything that came out of here. But there's yeah. ambiguity here of mm-hmm. of whether she's corrupted or not. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I appreciated.
2: I think what I liked about um because I remember the clip from the film with the little kid, but it's he he almost does gauge coming back. I know he goes and kills two people. And takes different forms when he's killing the two people. Like they, they see things that like are not there they see you know he he sees his wife and everything but there's just a little more restraint than like schlocky stuff in the novel here that like you know you could you believe for a split second that gauge is like better you know and and but then like he the scalpel's gone so he kind of pieces together and it's it's sinister but it's not as blood-sucking monster type of you know of, of that, I don't if Gage really has like monologues or anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but before that, we have Norma because the, the one time Lewis helps somebody cheat death, it's in a legitimate way, so to speak, in that he saves Norma's life when she has a heart attack on Halloween, mainly because he just happens to be at the right place at the right time. And he is a doctor, so he knows how to, you know he knows how to heal and he does what he needs to do to keep her alive. And then they take her to the hospital, etc. But she eventually does, does die. And then we have that really horrific scene where, where I felt so bad for Judd because he's seeing her and she is just growling at him in that sort of same voice that like was reserved for Zelda in the flashbacks and telling him about, because because we can't have a Stephen King novel without him in some way to using some sort of illicit sexual act um, <laughs> he's like you know they did this and we laughed at you and all these things I'm not going to get into the into the vulgar details
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, And I felt bad for Jud because he did honestly care about her like he loved her he was his wife for 50 60 years or whatever it was. But, you know, Norma's decline kind of parallels Zelda's in that way as well, you know, which uh, which Rachel's witnessing, too. So I think it ties that back together, too. Um, What did you think of Judd as a character?
1: Well, there's got to be so much buy in because doesn't this novel start with Lewis actually saying like Judd is the father that I always wish I had? Mm hmm. More or um, less, It's very yes. early on. He talks about it. Would you say? Yes. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. And he does seem like a what is that word in a character? Mm hmm. And just someone who, Ooh. yeah, just seems kind like he's t- giving a the lay of the land saying, you know, protect uh, your children because of this terrible road, I, I think even stop, Well, he stops Lewis from crossing at one point when one of those trucks is barreling down. I think he uh, protects the kids at one point. He's he calls about church. So all these seem I, I feel like he's a pretty genuine guy and he seems very loving towards Norma now he for whatever reason i guess king didn't want him to be super perfect mm-hmm. so he does visit some whore houses in his youth i guess throughout maybe throughout the marriage until he's old old but um yeah so that so that was an interesting like character flaw that mm-hmm. King decided to give him because he does seem like such a devoted husband. But yeah. overall, yeah, he is a, you know, a kind character and I'm glad that Lewis has someone. I felt like the chemistry was slow building for me because when you're told at the very beginning that this was like a father character, loved him like a father, a father mm-hmm. I never had, then I expect something kind of immediate And it only seems to sort of gradually build. But I I do enjoy the fact that, you know, Lewis has this nice relationship with him and and can trust him. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately to his downfall since we know what happens. But Yeah. yeah, is there is this character... Do we generally – is this a trope? Do we generally have kind of a nice guy? Well, if you think about it, isn't he similar to the guy in The Shining? Like maybe he does have these kind of kindly, uncle-y characters that yeah. are helping somebody through a realism situation some,
2: it depends. or magical
1: realism situation.
2: Yeah, and in, in some of the stuff that he has, he has – um, or, or that type of friendship where there's a helper. In some sort of way, and sometimes he does use the old man as the as the trope. Yeah, so I think, and I did, did remind me of, I think O'Halloran is the is the guy in The Shining.
1: Yes, yeah, um, I can
2: remember. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and and I I feel I agree with you. And then the whole thing with him visiting the horror houses, of course, the thing that Norma, like kind of demon Norma says, toward the end of Judd's life, is, you know, I know you I know you messed around with horrors, and guess what I did with your friends. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, the imperfectness of every one of the characters, too, and the fact that they all in some way or another had secrets is, I think, important because it it, it shows an obvious humanity to them and and the lack of perfection among these characters, you know, because he's also exploring the darker side of, of humanity through this, too. So you can't have too many. You really can't have characters be perfect, you know, and I don't think he actually thinks anybody could possibly be perfect, you know. And the thing is, the thing about his, so yeah, it's page, it's like, it's like the second chapter of the novel ends with him saying, this is the man who could be his father. It's like page eight of my book. So it is like really early. Yeah. It's like right after they meet him. I think the slow build of the relationship is Lewis coming to realize this, but the relationship still has to build anyway.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, because I think the thing about Lewis is that for almost this entire novel, he feels very, very alone. Because his, his own father is dead. Rachel's parents absolutely hate him. So that helps with the isolation that he puts himself into, because they move from Chicago to Maine. That's not down the road, right? And Maine is, you know, so they, they move to this remote town, essentially, or this this little town that's kind of off the beaten path or out of the way. And the only people he has are the other members of his family. So that's, I think that's important. And by the end of the book, he is all alone because of what he has done. So Lewis is, there's, there's things of loneliness in here and there's things of trauma and grief. And I think that's what I picked up on, in addition to Demon Cats, which can be redundant <laughs> and demon children can be redundant too. Um, but no, like in addition to all the, the horror elements of it, I feel the trauma, the grief and the loneliness are the things that I think I picked up on the most, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And um, when I think I'm going to go to Gage's death here. Cause I have a couple of questions on that, obviously, cause it's like the crux of the entire back half of the novel. So, did he telegraph this too much to you?
1: Well, we're all the, I guess the trucks were Chekhov's,
2: uh, yes. Chekhov semi track. Yeah. So Chekhov tractor trailers.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> From what was that Simcoe or something?
2: Yeah. Simco. it's basically a chemical plant. So that, um, I don't think the chemical plant plays any role in anything other than to have a reason for trucks going up and down that road.
1: Yeah, I agree. I compared to the 1989 film, which at a certain point, actually, you see a driver at that plant get into his truck and start on his journey. (laughs) That's telegraphing because you're like, okay, there's something special about this truck.
0: (laughs) But I think it lays
1: out enough that this is a dangerous road. Mm hmm it's killed many pets. So really you could have left it at that because that's why the pet cemetery is there because this road has killed many pets and he just warns them. And of course, you know, um, church got hit by a truck. So yeah. Uh, but then all of a sudden, yeah, it gets super heightened by, Mm -hmm. um, by this, but it's interesting how King lays out that death because that part was, in my opinion, oddly structured because it goes back in time in order to catch you up. Yeah. Because it's like the funeral has already happened, and you're like, what? yes gage is dead It like lays it out yeah. very nonchalantly and then oh there was a fight but you don't find out about the fight until later like it's a very strange structuring and i almost would have liked the suspense of seeing this in action rather than being told gage is dead and then finding out how gage died so mm-hmm. i don't think that it was craft um but it's laid out in a strange way and in my opinion uh, maybe poorly i didn't okay. like it as much
2: um, I think, I agree with the telegraphing aspect. I think he's, I think he builds tension incredibly mm-hmm. well. Um, that's what I kept picking up on. Cause like, cause I was like, oh, this is the one where the kid dies. And I couldn't remember which kid, or like, like I said, you know, and even if you know, one of the kids is going to die or somebody's going to like, even if you didn't know one of the kids was going to die or Gage was going to die or like, well, somebody, the cat gets hit. It's like the next is going to be a person and therefore you're waiting for that. It's going to happen. So he builds a lot of tension, builds a lot of tension, but you're right. At the end of part one, he puts, he's in the house, he's in Gage's room, Gage's in his crib, he tucks Gage in, and then we flip to part two and they're at the funeral or thereabouts, right? Or after the funeral. And then we get the story of the death told through a flashback. The only thing I can think of is what he's trying to do is is show us how in that moment, like the shock of it has blocked it out of his mind. And we're seeing Lewis as he starts to remember things as they are, because he has a dream, right? He has this dream where Gage never died, where he saved him from the truck. Because um, the circumstances of Gage's death are... This hit, no pun intended, um, Gage is two years old, and he has started playing this game where he's going to run away from Mommy and Daddy and get Mommy and Daddy to chase them. And that's how he ends up in the road. Mm -hmm. So he's not doing anything defiant. He's not drawn there in some sort of creepy way, right? You know, like like out of some bad horror movie, like all of a sudden he's there, and then, oh, it's going to happen – no, he's just playing like a little baby does, you know, a little toddler does and toddles over and toddles over. And I, I have a kid, right, who's 15, but Brett was two. And I remember the thump, 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 thump up and down the hallway. Thump, 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 thump. And I'm like, and I'm picturing my child doing this. And I'm and he's when he is describing the death scene, I'm like, oh my God, it just, it was. It was really tense for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I was thinking, well, maybe we didn't get the moment in the in the book because he wanted us to be like, what the hell just happened? Wait, we're And then going back and, and filling it in. And so we are getting Lewis's shock and then we're getting it filled in and, and the, 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 the trauma and the grief of it are coming out um after the little bit of denial and some so i think he's i think that's what he's playing with i don't know if he's wholly successful with it i will say the scene where we actually see Gage's death really um really hit me And I want to say this, especially because I'm a parent. (laughs) So, you know, and it is one of those things where you are deathly afraid of something terrible like that happening to your child, you know, for obvious reasons, but, Mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know how, I don't know if it totally lands the way he wanted it to. So I kind of agree with you on it there. Um, But the fight with the father at the funeral, that totally tracks based on everything they talked about, the tension between the two of them and how much of it, because his father, his father is not as much of a jerk as the father of what's her name in the art of racing in the rain. What was the wife's name? in oh. The art of racing in the rain. Cause remember the father, they were trying to take the custody of the daughter. And then there was the whole thing. Like he's not that level of a hole, but mm-hmm. those parents are kind of like that. They're like, you know, we're yeah, manipulating very things
1: similar. and
2: yeah. So, so the, the fight, Christian
1: be- Maxwell.
2: Yeah, yeah. I feel the fight between Lewis and his father-in-law is very well earned, as far as the narrative of the story, arc of the
1: of the novel. But it's crazy. I mean, the worst part of it, of course, is that they knock cages, gauges. Uh-huh. Get, get, uh, it, the worst part of it is that they knock gauges casket off. Yeah. And luckily, the body doesn't roll out, but that's <laughs> awful.
2: Yeah. Good. And it's a little dramatic. It is a little. Soap opera-y in a way. But I, I do think it, it it earns that. It earns that and stuff like that. And just the... You know what? And and you know what I also really did like? The detail King goes into when he digs up the body. And not because I'm looking for gorse, gross, gory details. But the detail he goes into of the logistics of actually accomplishing this... I got to climb over the point defense. I've got this is how hard it is to dig, you know, and then I have to get this and and to make sure that nobody sees me. I thought that uh, as far as realism is concerned, I really appreciated seeing this because it was not an easy thing for him to do. And we saw how hard it was every step of the way, and therefore we help we went right with Lewis into this descent into you know, madness, or that he's on autopilot for it. I I, th- I thought that was a very, very well written scene. What did you think about that?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's it was almost overly detailed, right? Every every mm-hmm. step, um, him hurting his knee, the everything he had to do with the um, the detail of he didn't get the cement, but of course it it also flashes back to which is a good thing this connection to his, was it his uncle or his grandfather who had some sort of burial service? Yeah. Because a lot of the detail wouldn't make sense if it were, like, just this doctor chatting about it, but the fact that I think he worked with his uncle Mm -hmm. and has some some background. But, yeah, Yeah. I think it also, there's the the tension there Mm -hmm. with what's going on in that scene and the fact that you really don't want him to be doing this. And, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to be the end result? Is he going to get caught? Is is he going to stop? Is someone going to catch him so they can make him stop? All of that. So, yeah, the slowness of that, I think, creates this build.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, of
1: course, um, it's also just said that he has to wrap his son in a tarp. I thought, yeah. well, I guess that's the only way to get him out. But it just seems like so almost dehumanizing. But yeah, um, he certainly is. And I didn't understand actually how he got him over the fence. Like I was trying to figure out if he had such trouble getting over the first time, how he then had a corpse with him and got over the fence. I, don't I know if he think, caught that, but there was so much going on.
2: I'm gonna say and I'm not I'm not gonna go back and, and look for it, but I would say though a uh, a toddler weighs twenty, thirty pounds. Okay. Um, it's very possible that he got him to the fence and was able to hoist him up and over and drop him over. And then he, climbed ah! up the fence. I know, I know, I know, okay. I know, I know. But that, that's, I'm trying to think okay. of like, if I'm doing this, the kid's light enough that I could,
1: you, yeah. could probably, you know, you know yeah. nobody has to catch Man. him on the
2: other side. Um, yeah, so I think that's what it is. But yeah, yeah. And you know what? It, it matches with the slowness of Rachel's trying to catch him. Right. Stop him. She's, she doesn't know what he's, she, like, it's almost like she kind of knows what's going on, but she doesn't, because she doesn't know all the details about what it is. And then yeah. like all this crap happens to her, like trying right. to get a flight, the car breaking down and like all of these things where, is this just really dumb coincidence and dumb luck that these things are happening? Is it this Murphy's law type of thing, or is something preventing her from getting back to Ludlow to stop him from doing what he's going to do?
0: Um,
2: and it could be either one. I think the suspension, like the, the plausibility of a lot of this is really, really good in the book. And I think that's why I like the book so much. Um, you know, that, that there's some weird, weird things and almost superna- and supernatural things going on, but it's very grounded in a very real place. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, so two very, very quick last questions and then we'll be wrapping up our discussion. Um, I'll start with the one about Ellie, because Ellie, Ellie, for all intents and purposes, I think we're made to believe that Ellie stays in Chicago um, with her grandparents. Um, She seems to she has kind of a premonition about the the stuff she's been having, like, weird nightmares and and things like that. Um, I don't think Ellie's psychic on the level of Danny Torrance. Um, It I, I wonder if something is trying to keep Ellie from getting hurt. Uh, but, you know, that's that's a, a whole other <laughs> discussion. But um, a qu- King has said, and I, well, I was just doing some digging on, on places like TV tropes and, and Wikipedia and such. Uh, King has said somewhere in an interview, and I don't have a source for it, that Ellie is somebody asked about Ellie. And he says, Ellie is raised in a loving home, turned out OK, but still has nightmares about the pet cemetery. So she's almost kind of like Steve in that her distance from it keeps her from, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, uh, that was a little bit of of comfort for me. <laughs> I don't know. Would that be a little bit of comfort for you knowing that at least one kid in this family is gonna be okay?
1: So what you read was just like a made up. This is what I imagine happening. Yeah, yeah.
2: okay or like well, like with somebody I think the, I think it comes from because uh, I was looking I think I got off the TV trip site. people asked about it. I think somebody asked King either in an interview or a panel or something, and that's he said, He kind of gave the the way the way people ask, and I apologize for for bringing up this person, the way people ask J.K. Rowling what happened to the Harry Potter characters. And she just says, oh, yes, this. And it's just like half the time you're like, lady with King. I think somebody asked him, like, what did happen to Ellie? He said, oh, yeah, Ellie, Ellie turned out fine. You know, that sort of like response to it. Like, in other words, there was no real need to write her story because it is kind of a loose end.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but at the same time, like, I don't know, it was a little comforting to me to to see that from an interview with him where he's like, yeah, she's fine. Because I'm like, OK, good. Somebody was OK. <laughs>
1: well, Tom, where's she got wh- who, who? Let's think about this logically. Who's going to be taking Ellie in when both of her parents are dead?
2: Her grandparents. Yes. I think that's where they left him. That left
1: Did her. Rachel have a good upbringing?
2: No. But I think that King was trying to plant the seed that whatever. That. I think before Lewis. I think at some point in the funeral and after the fight and everything, Lewis and Rachel's parents start burying the hatchet.
1: He does, like, legitimately apologize, yeah. or I should say, genuinely apologize yeah. to Lewis. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I think that is. If I'm being positive about it, Ellie's the second chance to make good on what they didn't with Rachel. Okay. So, like, this is your precious granddaughter. We have a second chance that it, it, in a sense, because this book is also about second chances, right? Mm -hmm. Second chances that go horribly wrong, but maybe this is one of the second chances that goes right.
1: Yeah, if, if we believe in that, then I I think that is somewhat comforting Mm -hmm. and hopefully because, yeah, because if we just take it to be Irwin and whatever the wife's name was, Mm -hmm. and now Rachel is just in the same situation, but, I know that they were already, I think, changing after Zelda because I think the reason why he was so attached to Erwin, was so attached to his daughter and so protective is because of everything they went through with Zelda, even though they made a huge error by leaving her alone with Rachel. Mm -hmm. so And, yeah, there might be a change in heart, so hopefully it will be better. And depending on how long this... Burial ground, the the Wendigo had its You know, every time I say Wendigo, I think X Men.
2: Yeah, Alpha Flight.
1: <laughs> uh, honestly. So I just want to. You're the only person I think that I could actually understand. That's what say I think that of, to too. You yeah, yeah, understand. That was my but first every song. time. It's like, wait, aren't Wendigos men who eat like another men's flesh and then they like turn into that and then the X Men and Alpha Flight go after? Yeah, Wolverine. Yeah, Anyways. Yeah. Um, maybe if it's had its hooks in this family for so long, then now maybe that it's gotten what it's wanted, uh, it will keep them alone. But, yeah, so hopefully it's comforting. That was your main question, right? Yeah, that was Um, my main question. Or is there some comfort? Yeah, Yeah, I hope that she is okay. Otherwise, you know, that's some great trauma. Because she was separate Mm -hmm. from everything, but she was having these, you know, on the plane, she was having a traumatic event and then the dreams and everything. So who can say?
2: Yeah. I would imagine that it it would fade over time, but like he says in that interview, um, she still has nightmares about it, so there's, you know, I don't think he would have set up a sequel or anything, I just think the you know, the again, but it's, again, it's trauma, right? It's something that never absolutely leaves you, so you'll have those dreams, and you'll have those reactions and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what happens to (laughs) Lewis? Because at the end of the book, his wife's um like he buries Rachel and he says um uh you know the last part of it is Steve heading back from um to to uh the last part of the last chapter is Steve heading out to the midwest and being like you know having um like Basically, I'm I'm done with this, and and I never um I never you never went back to Maine again, and um, you know this is the same late afternoon. So there's an epilogue on 395, um, and uh, he's playing solitaire, uh, and this is you know, it says he was just dealing a fresh hand when he heard the back door open. What you bury is what you own, and sooner or later what you own will come back to you, Lewis, Creed thought. He did not turn around, but only looked at his cards as the slow, gritting footsteps approached. He saw the Queen of Spades. He put his hand on it. The steps ended directly behind him. Silence. A cold hand fell on Lewis's shoulder. Rachel's Rachel's voice was grating, full of dirt. Darling, it said. And that's the end of the novel, which is creepy AF, by the way. Mm -hmm. So creepy. So good. So. Oh, does she keep him alive?
1: Oh, yeah, I really love the ambiguity of it. Uh, I guess it's whether you think Gage was a fluke. Mm -hmm. Gage and the bulls. Gage and the bull were a Uh fluke. Or if you think that. Well, I guess Timmy kind of was messed up. I mean, he wasn't violent, but then all of a sudden he was spouting all of that really bad stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like. <sighs> There's no way to live with that person anyways. So I feel like she's probably going to get a second death by somebody. But. I am inclined to think that she probably was corrupted, and that uh, Lewis doesn't make it out. Lewis yeah, doesn't make it out, which is really sad because I find him to be a pretty selfish character in this regard, because because of Ellie, and even in and I know what I'm saying, so you know, give me, let me finish it before, and also understand I have empathy, hmm. but with throughout that whole the grief um all everything that he was going through he does not reach out at all really to ellie and his wife Mm -hmm. and ellie is just like a forethought so i understand in the moment like just wanting to get your loved one back but it's just so sad that the people who are still alive are just kind of pushed away and and ignored and not reached out. Whereas Mm -hmm. in time of grief, I feel like reach out to those people who are also sharing in that grief. Um, so yeah. So I guess that was my little (laughs) side path to say that I find him selfish. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he makes it out. And so I'm sorry for Ellie that she's alone, but perhaps maybe it's for the best and maybe, yeah, she will be brought up, um, in a loving home and it, it'll be better because I don't think Lewis even if his wife is okay I don't think he's coming back from this because there's probably going to come a time where he'd have to get rid of her as well and then he's just going to reach a breaking point if he hasn't already depending on what your definition of breaking point is. Yeah. So so that, that those are my thoughts <laughs> on the end and Lewis and where he stands.
2: Yeah, I I um okay, so I get the selfishness, but I also think that pushing away the people around who you, who do care about you and who are also going through the same grief is one natural response. Mm -hmm. And it tracks with Lewis as a character who has felt some sort of isolation for a lot of his life. Um, It's not good, So I do think there's a selfishness there. And yeah, he kind of... He ignores Rachel and Ellie. He inadvertently saves his daughter because he's so obsessed at this point with the idea that he could get his kid, the son, back that he sends Ellie to chicago and rachel to chicago and these guys of you know get out of here for a few days it'll help you feel better mm-hmm. whereas he's just being selfish because he needs he's trying to he's trying to do what he, he's trying to do this without anybody catching him right but inadvertently he actually does a fair he actually helps ellie you know because she's not present when all of this is going on with rachel i think it's a little more complicated I also think going back to the thing we we're just talking about with Ellie, he's the one that suggests that she go to the parents' house instead of like with Thanksgiving that she went and everything. So I think that it's another way to extend an olive branch to her parents. So there's there there's the there's the little bit of the uh, selflessness, the, the caring about it, but it's it's wrapped up in this selfish desire to get gauge back. So it's not a hundred percent altruistic. As far as what Rachel could do, there's a fully formed aspect to her by the end of the novel that I think that whatever evil spirit is now her can take advantage of. So I wonder if the rule here is that it is limited by what it possesses. So, like, the cat's going to be the cat but it really can't do much more than just be an annoying cat and and smell really bad and bat a couple of things. He might be able to claw at somebody or whatever, but it's still a cat, right? Mm-hmm. The bull is a lot more powerful. You know. And I would imagine the dog was kind of sluggish, never never really did anything. But dogs aren't necessarily known for being particularly vicious, and I mean they can be. But it was again, it was waking that demon up, right? So right. kind of like, where am I? Kind of disoriented, and the you know, eventually was. But with the bull, the spirit, my, and this is me, this is me, um, theorizing. So I don't know if this is exact. The spirit perhaps realizes its strength within it with Gage Gage is a toddler so Gage can play the little giggly games except now they're vicious games and it having possessed cuz it you know if with Timmy it was you know again you're you're feeling it out with Rachel it's very possible that 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 it, it has it's gained some sort of more intelligence by the time it has Rachel and it either will kill Lewis because i we will kill Lewis and kind of be a bit of a terror or it keeps Lewis around because it needs him in some way and then, and then kills him until it's no longer needed. I don't know how the, how King doesn't necessarily show us how this works. And I think that's a plus because Lewis doesn't know how this works and we are left with this chilling cliffhanger that is unresolved but I like that. I don't need a sequel. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
2: I don't need to know what happens to Lewis and Rachel. We can all we can all extrapolate and nothing ends well. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that ending man. Whew.
1: <laughs> yeah. I like that it's ambiguous.
2: Yeah, I like that too. So. All right. So, uh is this required reading
1: I'm trying to think in terms of death. If I, death and grief, if I would, um, Oh, I'm, I'm going to say no, just because if, if I do want to talk about death and grief, I might do it in a more realistic setting. So, you know, for yeah. example, night, mm-hmm. um, I think that serves that purpose. And I don't, if you're, my personal opinion is this isn't, well, uh, you take this with a grain of salt because, you know, my expectations were a bit askew. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if this is like a required, Um, should be maybe one through five of your Stephen King reads. Mm-hmm. I, I think it might be in top ten. But I think maybe I would choose other Stephen Kings to recommend first.
2: I'm with you there on the Stephen King. I'd say I put this in the top ten, but it's not in my top five. So there are other books that I would recommend before this one. Um, I would so I therefore wouldn't say it's required, but I would recommend it. Um, if somebody would say, hey, should I read this? I'd be like, oh, yeah, go ahead and read this. <laughs> you know, that's that's what I mean by like. Would you warn them? Um, I'd say, look, there there's some... I'd say there's, uh, without getting too much into it, there's, uh, yeah, there's some, there's some traumatic things that happen to, to very innocent people or something. It's hard to say mm-hmm. like a kid gets killed because that's the crux of the yeah, story.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but you know,
1: it's, it's so maybe you don't recommend it to a parent.
2: Yeah. It's just like, you know, um, you feel it when you're a parent. Um, and I'm actually glad I never saw the movie. Because then my image of it is not clouded by the by the film version mm-hmm. so I, I probably will go watch the movie at some point just out of curiosity the the 1989 one not the 2019 one yeah so all right well, we don't have any feedback from this episode um, what no we don't <laughs>
1: okay
2: so not,
1: peeps be slacking yeah
2: peeps be slacking so if anybody if any of our peeps want to not be slacking um, you know where to find <laughs> us email. Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. I would love to hear from you guys about this or any of the other books that we've done. Um, but right now, we're going to sign off. And before we do, uh, I have one question for Stella, and that is, what are we reading for next month?
1: Yes, I'm very excited for this. Now, I seem to ask Tom to read all the long novels because I'm thinking back, and I asked him to read – Jane Eyre and
2: Don Quixote
1: Don Quixote Vanity Fair
2: I I asked for Lavisa Rob
1: you did do Le Mis. I'm trying to think if there was any. I feel like there was another one that I asked. And I always in his. I Because I know that I'm doing this, I always give him several episodes in advance. So apologies to our readers because you're just getting one episode in advance. But I'm super excited to talk about this. It is an epic. It is a memoir. It's about prison and it's about France and other things. So it is Papillon by Henri Charrière.
2: Yeah. So and um it was made into a movie with Steve McQueen and I want to say Dustin Hoffman. Yes. Which I actually own have not watched. So
1: um, And a recent one as well. Oh, okay with Charlie Hunnam. Oh,
2: okay. And
1: um, oh shoot, what's his name who was um Queen, Eddie Mercury?
2: Ugh. Oh, oh, Robbie Malik?
1: Yes. All
2: right. Did not know that by the way. I just yeah. I was just familiar with the Steve McQueen version only because I have a my dad bought me a Steve McQueen movie box set for my for Christmas one year. And uh, I have I
1: think your dad loves you. Yeah.
2: So, and then uh, mainly because uh, you know I've I've watched a couple of the movies in there Bullet and The Getaway but uh, there's a few others. So.
1: Not this, yeah, David. Yeah. It. But it's about six hundred, wouldn't you say?
2: Mm, the book, the copy that I have is roughly five, I think.
1: Okay, yeah. So, so five to six, yeah. depending on. Yes. Yeah. So just you know to prepare yourselves for this. Yeah. And we'll, we'll be chatting. We'll be chatting some big themes and stuff we <laughs> next will. time. I'm super excited about it. Cool. Yeah.
2: We will. All right. Well, until then, thank you very much for listening and take care.
1: And if a man with a serious head injury comes to visit you and tell you not to do something, maybe you should listen. Yeah,
2: that should have been a real freaking sign.
0: I mean, <laughs> I this guy... Know.
2: Anyway, good night.
0: Good night. The moon is full,
1: the air is still. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two True free, 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 free. That's two true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Required Reading with Tom and Stella.
2: If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes.
1: We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.
0: Oh, oh no. I don't want to